we're talking about <clears throat> how our lives can make a difference and, and how our lives can influence other people, influence circumstances and environments that we are in. Uh, and so we're asking how can we be an influencer? Typically when we think of being an influencer, because it involves uh, changing circumstances or changing the way people see certain things or, or what they believe or what their opinion is, uh, we often think of that person as having a certain position or a certain title or a certain weight to them. There's someone that people would listen to. They have a certain strength. They have a certain power over the situation. Or maybe they're just a really good communicator. And so they communicate things in ways that cause people to see things differently or to change their behavior. There's an aspect of influence that means weight. Right? You can sway people. You can move situations. But that's not the only way to influence. That's not the only form of influence. If it were, then influence would be limited to a very small group of people. People who had position and titles, who had strength or power or were extremely good communicators. But that's not the way all influence works. There is a form of influence, according to the Bible that anyone can have. <clears throat> Any of us could exhibit. It doesn't matter if you're an extrovert or an introvert, you're a really good speaker or not a good speaker, whether you have position or title or elected office, whether you have some strength about who you are or your position. None of that matters in this particular case. Now, we're going to study this form of influence from a book called 1 Samuel. It's about 25% of the way through the Bible, about a quarter of the way through the Bible. Uh, it comes after Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel, similar to the story of Daniel that we looked at last week, 1 Samuel happens in a period of transition for the nation of Israel. They're coming out of being led by what... Uh, the Bible calls judges. It was leaders. Uh, Deborah was one of those. We talked about Deborah two weeks ago. Deborah was a leader. She was a judge. She was a decision maker. We studied uh, her life uh, a couple of weeks ago. The problem was, as the period of the judges went on, as it played out, leader after leader, in the succession of leaders, each one was a little bit worse than the one before. A little less godly. And, and, and maybe this didn't appear to be a problem at first, but you multiply that over leaders and generations, and the nation of Israel was, was in a pretty dire place at the end of the book of Judges. As a matter of fact, the very last verse in the book of Judges says this, in, the, in those days, the period of the Judges, at the end of that period, in those days, Israel had no king, Everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, everybody did whatever they wanted to. They, no one had restraint. There was no, no sense of, I should discipline myself or restrain my desires. Everybody just did whatever they wanted. And no, and no one cared what anybody else thought. Uh, no one cared what God thought. There was, no, there was no thought of obedience or what would God want for us. The only thought that people had during this period of time was, what do I want? What's best for me? What will help me? It was a very selfish, narcissistic time. The, the poor were being overlooked. The hurting were being dismissed. 
That is the period of transition that we're stepping into when we begin 1 Samuel. God is very soon going to lead his nation to choose a king and, and a succession of kings. So they're moving out of the period of the judges and into the period when Israel will be led by a king. Then this story happens at the beginning of that season. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. So we meet this guy. His, his name's Elkanah. And we get a, a, a somewhat extended ancestral line for Elkanah. Now, genealogies uh, happen frequently in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the Gospels. But when an individual is given this ancestral treatment, typically it means there was something significant about this person. This person was well-known. He was well-connected. He, he had some leadership position within the nation. Everybody knew this person. There was some sense of nobility about this person. And we meet in the very first verse a guy by the name of Elkanah who has all of this. And yet... Elkanah is not the influencer in chapter 1. Verse 2. Elkanah had two wives. <clears throat> one was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Elephant in the room. Occasionally, especially in the Old Testament, we come across men, even men of Israel, even leaders in Israel who had multiple wives. The narratives of the Bible, the stories of the Bible, don't always stop and remind us this was wrong. They're just telling the story, right? This is what happened is not necessarily saying this is what God wanted to happen. Right? The narratives just say this is what happened. Because the narrative tellers, they know that we have other places in the Bible to find out whether God liked it or not. And it's very clear in the rest of the Bible that God did not like this. God did not approve of multiple wives. In the Ten Commandments, he addresses adultery. Not only do we know that God disapproved of this custom, we also know in, in every incident in the Bible, when we find someone with multiple wives, we know there are disastrous consequences downstream. Right? We, the Bible plainly says, and these were the consequences of this terrible decision. We're going to see that in our story today. So no, God does not approve of this. The narrator is just telling us this was the situation. And, and we also know that culturally this was accepted. Wasn't accepted by God. Wasn't approved by God. But culturally this was approved, uh, especially when a husband had married a wife and that wife was not able to have children even more so in that day. Ability to keep land in the family, wealth in the family, uh, ability to maintain a prestigious name was all connected to offspring. Right? The land would be passed down to the children of the person. The wealth that had been accumulated would be passed down to the children. The name and the prestige would be passed down to the children. So if you were without children, you, you had no one to keep the land, keep the wealth 
in your family. And so, as we see with a few other characters in the Old Testament, when the wife was not able to have children, another woman was brought in. That's not an excuse. That's an explanation of what's happening in the story. God still disapproved. God still condemns this. But that's the explanation of how we got to this point. Elkanah has two wives, Hannah and Penina, of the two wives... The wife with the most power, the most status, is the wife that has all the children. Because her children are going to inherit the land. They're going to get the name. They're going to inherit the wealth. They're going to have the prestige of belonging to Elkanah's family, who was an esteemed citizen of Israel. Penina, because she provided children and her children were going to benefit, she has all the power in the story between the two wives. But, Penina is not the influencer in this story. Verse 3. Year after year, this man, Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrificed to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. The religiously powerful at the time were the priests, those in positions of authority, those who carried out the ceremonies of worship, those who organized the annual feast throughout the year, those who prayed on behalf of the people, those that the people looked to, to hear from God, to get God's instruction. Those were the priests. We meet three of them, Hophni, the older, and then Uh, I'm sorry, Eli the older, and then Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons, were serving in the role of uh, priest with all of the power that the religious system could give, and yet none of them are the influencer in the story. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading in the story, you find out that Hophni and Phinehas were despicable people. They were horrible, terrible people. And Eli, although at one time he was a faithful servant of God in his older age, He had failed to discipline his sons. He had failed to teach them the ways of God. He wasn't leading even his own family, much less the nation, in the way that God wanted him to lead. The whole religious system had been corrupted, had been embarrassed. We also learned that Elkanah, for his faults, For his very obvious flaw that we've already discussed, he was in some ways still a very good man. He was in some ways still a very spiritual man. Um, uh, Imperfections often reside in good people, right? We, we, We have the... The both and when it comes to all of us because we're all flawed people. Not an excuse, but we are all flawed people. And Elkanah, though very flawed in this one area, it was important to him that his family know God. It was important to him that his family annually go to Shiloh, which for a period of time in the Old Testament was the place of worship prior to the temple being built. This was one of the places that people would go. They would interact with the priests. They would make sacrifices. They would worship God. And so we see Elkanah caring for the spiritual health of his family. So they set out every year to make this pilgrimage. Verse 4, whenever the day came 
for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. So we already start to see the dynamic in the family. That Elkanah has some empathy and compassion for Hannah who's not able to have children. And so he gives her more of the provisions when they go to make sacrifices. And while on the one hand this demonstrates his love for her, we could see how this could easily lead to rivalry between the two women, right? We, we could easily see how this could lead to conflict between the two women because Penina surely was aware of what Hannah was given and Hannah was painfully aware of the fact that Penina had children and Hannah didn't. We, we actually see the rivalry in the next verse, verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, Penina, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. So Penina used this position. She used the sorrow and brokenness that Hannah was experiencing and made it worse. Year after year, she would do this. And specifically, the Bible says, she would do this when they went to worship. To the point that Hannah just couldn't eat anymore. She's so broken. She's so depressed. She can't eat. She, she weeps. This is the situation she finds herself in. And, and, and don't miss the point that this happens while Hannah is going to worship. What should have been a spiritually significant moment in the life of Hannah was her most painful moment. What should have been a, a significant moment for her family was the moment of her greatest wounds. The moment when she should have been going to meet with God and worshiping God and experiencing spiritual refreshment was the same time that she was experiencing her greatest wounds. You know, there are people, we can acknowledge this, we can acknowledge this in the room. There, there are people who went to church to find grace and forgiveness and healing and to meet with the Lord and the church became the place of their greatest wounds. They went to church to find spiritual wholeness and they were met with rejection or, or they were met with dismissive attitudes or judgmental attitudes. And what should have been the spiritual moment in their life became the painful moment in their life. I'm not saying every church is this way or most churches are this way. I'm not saying the church, like the big church, all of us Christians together. I'm not saying that's the way most Christians are. I'm saying some people have the same story that Hannah had. They went to a church. They went to a pastor. They went to a group of people who said they were believers. And instead of experiencing grace and love and redemption and forgiveness, they experienced their greatest wounds and the greatest abuses. That is where Hannah finds herself seeking a connection to God. She instead was wounded. Verse 8. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? 
Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And if you have ever wondered whether men say dumb things, it's in the Bible. Men just say dumb things sometimes. Like Elkanah, why would you have ever started this line of questioning to begin with? You know why she's weeping. You know why she can't eat. Why would you ask her about ten sons when she hasn't been able to have one son? You big idiot, right? Sometimes people trying to help say the absolutely worst things. Are are you getting a sense of how alone Hannah must feel at this point? How misunderstood she must feel at this point. How rejected. How she must think nobody gets it. They keep offering help. You have people who offer helpful words that just don't help. That's where Hannah is. Notice what happens next. Once. When they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In other words, he could see Hannah from where he was sitting. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will be used on his head. Hannah stood up in the midst of all of her pain and all of her brokenness. The Bible says Hannah stood up. She decided, I'm going to take action. I'm going to do something. I'm not going to sit here and weep continually. I'm going to do something. I'm going to begin to act. And what does she do? What, how does she act? She prays. Her act, her step, her moment of boldness is to pray. Out of all of the brokenness that she's experienced, out of all of the sorrow, all of the grief that she's experienced, she asks God for a son. And in her prayer, she makes what's, what's called in the Old Testament a, a Nazarite vow, which may not mean a lot to you. If you know the story of Samson, the Nazarite vow is really important to that story. But uh, it, in essence, it was this extra commitment that some people made to God. Not everybody made it. It wasn't required of everybody, but there were certain rules. And this was a way for a person to say, God, I want to live out a deep commitment to you. I want to be fully committed to you. So I am going to agree to these terms. And Hannah, on behalf of the son that she did not have, she wasn't even pregnant, but on behalf of this son, Hannah says, God, he will be committed to you. I will give him to you. He will serve you. I will make sure of it if you will just give me a son. Verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Maybe you pray that way sometimes. You pray silently, but you're mouthing the words. That's Hannah. Eli, the priest, thought she was drunk and said to her, 
How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. So with all of her struggles and all of her brokenness and all of her wounds, she gets up the courage to go to the place of worship and to begin to pray. And her spiritual leader, the priest, the guy at the top of the religious system, accuses her of being drunk. If you didn't know that pastors sometimes say dumb things, it's in the Bible. The very person she should have been able to look to for spiritual empathy and spiritual guidance and understanding. If there was anyone she should be able to look to who would, who would take a shepherd's approach to her heart, who would care for her and empathize with her and pray with her, it should have been the priest. It should have been the pastor. And yet the pastor dis- dismisses her is rude to her, is sarcastic to her, questions her motives. This is where Hannah finds herself. This is the the weight of her situation. And and look, I, I would say to you, there will be times when people just don't get you. They don't get you. They don't get your experience. And some of those people will be Christians. Like some of them may be pastors. Some of them may be people that you appeal to because you think surely this person will understand my heart and they may be dismissive and rude. They may not get you. They may not understand your heart. But the one who will always get you is your father. The one that will always hear you is your God. The one that will always see your heart and know your motives and understand all of the experiences that have brought you to this point. Maybe a point of wounding and brokenness and trauma that no one else seems to understand. Your heavenly father will know you. And Hannah calls to him (laughs) because her husband doesn't get it. And her rival doesn't get it. And her pastor doesn't get it. And the church doesn't get it. So she just calls out to God. Like I'm not saying we don't need churches. I'm not saying we don't need pastors and spiritual leaders. I'm saying we're all flawed. And there are sometimes in the brokenness of your heart, you're going to appeal for that empathy from someone. And it's not going to come. But it will always come from your heavenly father. I'm not excusing The Eli's of the world, they need to do better. We need to do better. I'm not excusing churches where this happened. We need to do better. I'm, I'm not excusing spouses where this happens, friendships where this happens, close people close to you where they're dismissive in your moment of need. I'm not excusing them. I'm simply saying your heavenly father will never treat you that way. When you read the story, Eli seemingly catches himself. He realizes he's been a total jerk uh, to Hannah because when she says, no, no, I'm not drunk. I'm praying for this. Eli suddenly says, oh, well, that's a good prayer. I, I think I'll pray for that too. His words are, well, may God grant you what you've asked. His whole tune changes 
But the wound has already been inflicted and Hannah's not looking to him anyway. Hannah's looking to her God. So after this experience, they go back home. And verse 19 is kind of PG-13, so I'll let you read that one to yourself. But after verse 19, they have a son. God answers her prayer. She has a son. After all this time of waiting and being misunderstood, there's hope. And I know that that prayer doesn't get answered in that way every single time. But in this story, God answers that prayer. And it would be great if that was just the end of the story. Like we wrapped up that one and then we moved on to something else. It'd still be a beautiful story. She had a son. They all lived happily ever after. The end. Next story. But that's not the end of the story. That's that's the beginning of the story. This prayer, this woman's influence through prayer, that's just the start of it because Samuel then goes at a young age to live with the priest, with Eli. And, And at a very young age, he begins to hear the voice of God. God begins to speak to him, which God hasn't been speaking to his people. Right? They've been so disobedient at the end of the period of the judges that they weren't hearing from God. They weren't, they weren't getting instructions from God. And we see in Samuel's young life that God's speaking again. Eli and Hophni and Phinehas all die very early into this story. All on the same day, as a matter of fact. They all die. Samuel then assumes the role of spiritual leader for the nation. Right after that, if you kind of flip in your Bible, these next couple of chapters, right after that, the next story after Samuel becomes a spiritual leader is that the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to the nation of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God, right? God's speaking to his people again. The presence of God has come back to his people again. God gets ready to give the nation a king when they ask for one. And so Samuel anoints a guy by the name of Saul to be king. But always in the shadows as you read 1 Samuel is Samuel. Always in the shadows. The steady, consistent, spiritual guidance for the nation is Samuel. When, when Saul goes crazy and loses it, you know who's there to steady the ship? It's Samuel. You know who's in the back? You know who's confronting when Saul needs to be confronted? It's Samuel. When God finally decides, I'm not going to work through Saul. I'm going to work through another king. It's Samuel that gets sent to anoint a little shepherd boy by the name of David to be the next king. Israel's greatest king, anointed by Samuel. The king David, from whose line a Messiah would one day come, Jesus would be born out of the line of the king of David. And that whole thing started because one woman prayed. One woman asked God. And God began to unveil his work for the nation. You think about the time when Jesus was born. Jesus was born at a time similar to Samuel's. That the government had failed. It had fallen. It had been taken over by Rome. The religious system had failed. The spiritual leaders had failed their people. They had failed to care for the poor and the hurting and the broken. Everything was broken. And like Samuel, Jesus is born because God had a plan. God was doing something. And you rewind the film. And it started 
when one woman prayed. The interesting thing about 1 Samuel chapter 1 is that the person with the least power and the most pain had the greatest influence because she prayed. The person with the least power and the greatest pain becomes the greatest influence in that moment, not because she had a title, not because she was strong, not because she was a great speaker or charismatic, not because she had a lot of followers on social media. She was the influencer because she prayed. She prayed. I bet, I bet there are people in your life like that. I bet, I bet if you reflect on your life, it was somebody not well known to other people. There was a grandmother. There was a grandfather. There was an uncle. There was, an aunt. There was somebody in your past, and you know they influenced your life because they prayed for you. They prayed for your family. See, sometimes it's the person with the least power and the greatest pain who decides, I am going to pray, who becomes the influencer. To pray is to be an influencer. To pray is to be a part of God changing things. Jesus is talking to his disciples one day, and his disciples are frustrated because there was a, there was a boy with seizures, and they couldn't help him, and Jesus shows up and, and, and heals the boy of his seizures, and they're debriefing afterwards, and the conversation goes like this. So the disciples say, well, Jesus, how come we couldn't do that thing that you did? And Jesus' response to them was, some things happen because you pray for them. Some, some of these things happen because you pray for them. These sort of things only happen by prayer. Some translations say, and fasting. These, these things only happen. So what Jesus taught was that there are things that happen in our life and there are things that don't happen on our life, in our life to the degree that somebody prays for them, right? And I, don't, I, I can't piece together all the mystery of prayer and the sovereignty of God and the providence of it. I, I can't piece all those little things together. I just know what Jesus said. And Jesus told his disciples, some things are going to happen and some things are not going to happen depending upon whether you pray for them. You can influence what happens if you pray. It's not a wish list. God's not a Santa Claus. We don't just pray for something and it happens. But Jesus was clear. Some things happen. Some things don't happen. Depending on whether you pray. James would take this topic up later in his book. And, and, and James would say, look, you don't have some things in your life because you haven't asked for them. You have not because you haven't asked in prayer. There are some things that will happen or won't happen depending on whether you pray and anybody can pray anybody can be this sort of influencer anybody regardless of whether they have power whether they have position whether their life is broken and wounded anybody can be an influencer through prayer James towards the end of his his book even references Elijah he says you know he was somebody just like you he was a person he wasn't superhuman he was a human just like you, and he prayed for rain, and it stopped raining. And then he prayed, it start raining, and it started raining. And he was just like you. He did not have any influence in prayer that you and I don't 
have. The question is, are we going to pray? Are we going to pray? Are we going to make it a consistent part of our life? I mean, think about the story. The nation had a need. It was broken. It was hurting. People were living their own life. They were disobedient to God. The nation had a need for a leader. The nation had a need for somebody to look to. The religious system was broken. The religious leaders were broken. The nation had a need. But before God answered the prayer of a nation, he answered the prayer of a woman. Before God answered the prayer of a nation, he answered this prayer of a woman. And he used her prayer to meet the need of a nation. So why don't we pray? Why don't we pray if we believe that prayer has this sort of power to it, has this sort of influence. Why don't we pray? We've been giving out these stickers. We have more at the welcome home table uh, in the hallway. It just says, I'm an influencer. You and I, we are influencers to the degree that we pray. Like if you didn't get one, get one. Put it wherever you pray and just be reminded that like Hannah, like Elijah, You're an influencer. To the degree that you call on the Lord in prayer. That you bring your life and the lives of people around you to the Lord in prayer. It doesn't matter your title. It doesn't matter your position. What matters is, do you pray? Because God goes to work when we pray. We we bring, we talked about influence as weight. We talked about influence as strength. We talked about influence as power, having sway over things. That's an influencer. When you pray, you bring strength to your situation. You bring power. You bring weight. But it's not your weight. It's not your power. That's the difference. It's not your strength. When you and I pray, we bring the power of God into the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We bring the strength of God into the relationships that we're concerned about. And you have influence over them. Because God, through prayer, has influence over them. God, I I pray that you would burden us with the need to pray. I pray that you would remind us that the weakest among us are strong when we pray. The least influential become the most influential when we pray. And in all of our lives, I bet most of us can look back and say, you know what, this person was praying for me. This person was praying for me and it changed me. It mattered to me. This person was praying for me. Help us not to be dismissive about that. Yes, sometimes there are things we can do, there are actions we can take after we pray, but pray initiates the power and the change and the movement. So help us not to treat prayer casually. Help us not to treat prayer with a dismissive attitude. Help us to come to you. Help us to ask Help us to pray. You see us. You know us. You see the powerless. You see those in pain. And you will move on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.